Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Nigel Baldacino. Nigel is a multimedia artist and architect based in Malta, and we're going to talk about his interest in architecture and how that influences work. Nigel also discusses how his experience with anxiety disorder affects how he interacts with the world and how he makes art. Just know that I reference a lot of Nigel's work in this podcast, so you might want to check out the work while you're listening or maybe before you're listening, uh, and his website is linked in the show notes. As always, the podcast is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Begin building your dream photo book library at charcoalbookclub.com. So a little bit more about Nigel Baldacino, who is an artist and architect based in Malta. He was part of a show that we talk about in this episode called Those Eyes, These Eyes, They Fade. Uh, and that was co-curated by Anne Imile, who is a previous guest of the show. In fact, I met Nigel through Anne while I was recording with Anne. And we mentioned this at the end of the show. He is currently part of the 2023 Long-Term Photo Book Program by Penumbra Foundation and Image Threads Collective, and was recently appointed curator and lead exhibition designer for the first edition of the Malta Biennale. The Biennale is an open call to artists, and the deadline for that is August 25th, 2023. And I will also link to that in the show notes. And one last note, Nigel participated in the Two Artists That Change Me YouTube series that I am running on the Real Photo Show YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out as well. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, hi, Nigel. Nice to see you again. Hello. What's up? <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, you were... You were kind of tech support for Anne Imelay's uh, podcast. That's the irony of it, considering what just <laughs> happened. But uh, yeah. So, of course, I, I had just met you that time, so I didn't really know your relationship. You and Anne have collaborated quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. We had gotten in touch, as in for the Those Eyes, These Eyes, They Fade um, mm -hmm. exhibition and now project. We It was me and Benedict Blondeau, another Belgian photographer. And uh, we went through all, went through a lot of kind of planning what we can do together and stuff because she had mm -hmm. chosen some of my work for her own exhibition, Benedict and stuff. And yeah, we at one point we decided we needed an external curator. I went on my Tumblr feed as I always do, and <laughs> uh, I looked up some and some things just popped up like photography exhibitions and if i remember correctly two popped up very close to each other and both of them and curated them to this day i can't remember which ones they are because she asked me several times um, <laughs> and then i went on her website and i saw the bio and the bio mentioned antonioni and some other things mm -hmm. uh, that kind of catched my fancy and I was like oh this must be a sign if I believe <laughs> yeah. in such thing and um yeah well, I believed we'll, um, enough well um I think for those who remember or want to go back and and listen to Anne's episode I think we'll see similarities in a kind of way of thinking about photography in space completely in your work as well but before we get to any of that why don't you just give us a little bit of background because I know you have an interest in, well, you have, you practice architecture and music and photography. Yes. And uh, 
Well, I'm an architect by profession, but before that, I was kind of into photography already from quite an early age. I had toyed around with cameras over my latish childhood. Mm-hmm. I was a kind of withdrawn little kid for several compound reasons. And um, well, photography was a way of, of I, I, I don't know, what, what is curious for me about photography was that I never knew what I was looking for in photography or, or what I was trying to do. I just felt just what a dopamine hack of sorts. So then I kept with my studies and uh, a couple of friends went into architecture. So I figured I would go into architecture. Architecture has since become uh, a passion of mine. And after that, it became a profession. Well, well, studying architecture gave me the vocabulary to to articulate my relationship with space and right, uh, right. the phenomenological sides of things and space perception and stuff like that. Well, uh, as, mm-hmm. as you brought that up, and it's something I was going to ask later on, but we might as well talk about it now. The, there is a phenomenal, not phenomenal, um, phenomenological <laughs> element to your work as a way of describing either psychological or an emotional or a disruption to the idea of factuality in photography. How does that play with architecture? Well, uh, I, dis- uh, I design very unpractical buildings that no one can... <laughs> okay. <laughs> that question the notions of why should I use this at all. No, no. Um, I... Uh... It doesn't translate, uh, well, it does translate, of course. Architecture has um, multiple schools of of thought and approaches Mm -hmm. when you look at, uh, for example, the um, later Corbusier stuff that should be familiar to everyone, Um, Louis Kahn and uh, the ancient stuff from Egypt, blah, blah. Mm. There's a lot of um, architecture and, well, Peter Zumthor and the Swiss part. And there, yeah, architecture has been historically a vehicle to question one's idea of how, what my role is in the space and what it's doing to me, kind of. There is, yes, a phenomenological side of it, um, phenomenological in the strictly philosophical sense, in that Absolutely. It, the, the, right. whole school, the whole school of philosophy around phenomenology. So sure, I mean, the, the suspects, idea of, yeah. of reverence, the idea yeah. of mythology, uh, our connection to a celestial world, everything, right? Ponty and all, all those guys, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's these eyes came from there pretty much directly, um, I would say, from right. that space. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to all of this in, in I think, in, in asymptotes and days light and all. But yeah. so, yeah, please continue with your, you were getting close to uh, then you know, uh, this sort of architecture and photography world all coming together. Yeah. Well, I graduated in, in, our, in architecture. I graduated as, as an architect and I, uh, well, technically not because I never got my actual warrant. 
um, <laughs> which many people would love to hear. <laughs> um, so I can't really sign for, can I say shit in this podcast? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we, I can't we have sign a, for an shit, adult basically. rating on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We can have, well, I can't really sign for shit any, on anything, but uh, <laughs> so I can design and I have less responsibilities, at least on paper. So I started practicing architecture and um, I have been since 2012 uh, mm -hmm. full time in architecture, but photography just kept, um, I, I just kept doing it in bursts, I would say. And of course, there is a natural inclination towards articulation of space. I mean, you, you see the the photos and the way I look at it. There is a sense of a lot of play with distance of what is object, what is subject and kind of, which all come from a perception of space. So it was always there. Photography right. was the one that stayed. Um, music, <laughs> well, I was never a musician. I am not a musician. I am <laughs> a dilettante and an amateur on several, but music has been one of the biggest elements in my life. I mean, in terms of cultural consumption, if you want to put it that way, um, I'm into music a lot and <laughs> into films a lot and into uh, poetry so and you, literature a lot. Do you lot. actually play an instrument or? I compose with my um, uh, with my PC, which that's is a right. long way of saying no. I don't play an instrument. Right. No, right. No, no. That's what I, th I actually thought you were. Yes, you com you compose electronically. Yeah, composing has some undertones which I'm not comfortable with, but I I can't I can't <laughs> find another word for it. So let's go with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So maybe this is the wrong question. When do you take photography as seriously as architecture? I think it happens with actually it happens. Well, not I think it's quite factual. <laughs> it happens <laughs> with the those eyes exhibition, those eyes, these eyes exhibition, oh, um, right. pretty much. It came from meeting Anne and um, I decided, but I had a show before that in the same space the year before. But when I did that show, when I did the Blink show, it was um, with Tom Van Malderen. It was, I knew already that Those Eyes, These Eyes was there. I had met mm -hmm. Benedict already. I had also eventually met Anne and was thinking about the next exhibition. So yes, meeting, I mean, Anne changed my life completely in that, I mean, I always tell people that she believes in my work more than I do, and that <laughs> that made an, I that made a big difference for me. I that's really nice. Yeah, I never thought I needed that amount of validation in my life, um, and therapy hasn't taught me anything clearly. <laughs> well, let's talk about that show. Those eyes, these eyes, they fade. Yeah, uh, it's your photographs with many others, and I. Uh, Benedictier Blondeau, yeah. Bernard Plassou, uh, Avoiska van, de van der Molen. Yeah. Van der Molen. And it's curated by Anne Emile. Um, and I think there were um, several articles on it uh, through Urban Autica yeah. and picked up by others uh, that you sent me. And Anne wrote, I perceived it as a posture which invites us to reflect on the conditions of vision, allowing us to question issues such as subjectivity and objectivity and the distinction between what is seen and perceived, what appears and disappears, 
The title conveys a spectral and poetic dimension, and the shift from those to these generates a state of suspension. So, I mean, I think from that description, uh, those who haven't seen the work can guess that there isn't going to be a sort of literal idea in the show, and that it's a collaboration that will come from different perspectives on what that means as well. But in terms of your work, did the work come from an existing body of work that you had, or was it work that you made for the show? I think you already hinted that you already had some idea for the show uh, before. Yes, I mean, I knew from from early on that I wanted to use a specific body of work for the for the show, which was uh, the fog kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was very clear on. Uh, ironically, I was clear on that because it's represented in my head the kind of thinking we were doing for those eyes. These eyes. It is the way I like to look at it is. Literally, it's gazing out as a way of looking in. It's it's an introspective approach to photography. It's a photography. I mean, the the analogy which we kept uh, bouncing towards was uh, the evidence thing. Photography mm-hmm. is something that, by its very physics, by its very nature, is something that presents physical evidence of. So it's someone telling you, look at this or freezing one moment and that's uh, like there is a sense of evidence to it in general our approach is different from that different in different ways also but um, there is no real sense of subject right it becomes hard to refer to photos like yeah the photo with the tree oh yeah sure (laughs) and in fact there was a very kind of poignant moment in the curating of it of course i was assisting anne in the whole process and at one point there was one photo uh that had been chosen and kind of had been in the works for being selected as part of the show and at very late in the day she was like Nah, this somehow it's not fitting. Uh, it was a photo, one of Benedict's photos with a volcano. And uh, I told her, it, I, I guessed it, it's because it's a, it's a photo of a volcano. So it is a volcano. You look at the photo and you think, ah, it's a volcano. So in comparison to anything else, I think that what that was the moment that it struck me that what it was really about because i felt that we were on the same very same wavelength on that level that was a photo that aesthetically fitted pretty much the rest of the show and uh, anyone could no one would kind of discern this this thing i just said but it was very important for us that we we kind of aligned without without really knowing well your your fog work um, you know, you like you said, you, someone could look at it and say, oh, trees, or <laughs> there's a branch, or there's, you know, but really it's, there's a lot of obscurity in the photography as well. And you use focus and fog and weather and light to take away from that kind of factual detail of photography. It's something that's, you know, it's been part of uh, impressionism. It's been part of, course. of yeah. pictorialism. It's been part of abstractionism and surrealism and so it is, it, you know, it's 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 a well-known method device. of a yeah, device, exactly, a well-known yeah, yeah, device yeah. in art to 
to either imply a more of a psychological or an emotional or the idea of memory or you know the idea of an experience as opposed to a place right for me it's um yeah yeah com completely of course um and <laughs> ironically most of those photos in that series were taken from the uh from the MIT in, in New York and mm. where they have a huge collection of uh, impressionist paintings and such <laughs> for me it was I was drawn to basically it was a stairway going up connecting floors and there was one of these screens that kind of doesn't let all the light come in to mm -hmm. protect UV and stuff like that and it was a double screen and it was the way it rendered the outside world um, was very peculiar to my eyes um, in the sense that I've seen, I'm, I'm, I'm an architect, so I kind of categorize different screens and how they work. And this one was very particular. And the whole thing was a what I was looking for in those photos specifically it wasn't the idea of memories and the idea of experience. Uh, it was more the idea of the visual visual vocabulary of things, of, of the visual vocabulary of perception. So in the sense of there are some elements, you can see some elements in the image which imply that there is depth. So there are planes that are drawn um, of, of, of depth, and uh, but somehow the way it is rendered, the image, it's it, it, it feels completely flat. So there is this dichotomy happening. There is a cognitive step to be taken uh, to figure out how you're going to go about it, which for me, it's, it's, is, um, it's a bit of a psychological trait in the sense that I hate the fact that I have to cognitively think about so much that I see and I can't just be and mm -hmm. uh, experience things, even though I would love to. But there is a lot that I have to just think about. Okay, what am I seeing here? And I'm someone, if it's not evident enough, that lives in his head quite a lot. I think uh, you mentioned that there's a sense of anxiousness in the photograph, yes, a sense of anxiety, yes. right? Um, yeah. It is. Well... That was the, the, that whole idea of the fog thing and the stuff I wrote came after I had shot and edited the photos, mm -hmm. edited as in sequences and some time passed and time passed also psychologically. And I go into these states at times. I'm, I have an anxiety disorder. I have several anxiety disorders. Um, all of them have a name. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, <laughs> And how it manifests is, the way I experienced it is, is it flattens reality for me a lot. So suddenly uh, there is no depth to things. So things that are making you anxious in your mental landscape, the urgency of them is alike. So everything starts becoming extremely urgent. Everything requires your full attention all the time. There is no gradient. There is no depth to things. And it literally feels flat, mm. like a film drawn around you, like a cinemascope. And uh, yeah, I was musing about the idea that I was drawn to, these, to this phenomenon from that 
I don't know how true that is. I mean, I would have to study the whole thing under a microscope with, with five experts. But there, <laughs> there is a poetic connection definitely in my head. And I felt like it was a it was an adept way of our of articulating of articulating it. Because it it is. That is right. how I experience things. Whenever I get less anxious through different means, I always feel the same. I always feel like suddenly everything is 3D again. Everything is I can mm. put things in perspective, like literally. So there's this whole game going on. I think we'll come back to some of this when we talk about day's light as well. Yeah. But before we, we move past uh, those eyes, these eyes, they fade. The other thing I think this work pushes back against is the idea that we can know something by looking at something. That idea that, that photography is evidence or it's so documentary that it, it reveals things that are factual to us. Which, of course, there is a... I always um, have this little caveat when I'm talking about whether or not photography is truthful or factual is that we're talking about a certain kind of photography, right? There is real, you know, documentary journalism work out there that is revealing and truthful in its way. But what we're talking about here is the idea that you don't have to have a complete knowing or understanding be just because you're looking at a photograph. Yes. And the, the perception of, a, there is a perception of photography as being this is something I know I'm mm -hmm. look, looking at and I'm sharing with you. And it's, right. not, I mean, there's a lot of people, it's not, it's not like we're some kind of uh, game-changing thing, but there is this role of photography historically that is about, it's less conscious and less cognitive and it's about photography as process, as, as mm -hmm. searching, searching for something and being drawn to something without really knowing how or why it's like pre-conscious things which is which is pretty much how we experience most of our lives really why don't we why don't we start talking about um asymptote which i think you know it's right in line with the the fog work and the show you were in in that it is uh, made in a certain way that is ungrounded I would say, similar to your other work. But it is in this case, it actually is very much about a place as well. It was very peculiar for me um, because, uh, as you say, it's, it's completely different from anything else I approached. Uh, it's drawn from a physical place. But in reality, it is not in the sense that what I was out to, to photograph uh, was more... I mean, the reason why I went to photograph comes more from the peculiar mental space that that place conjures in my head. So that is what I was uh, exploring mm -hmm. because of various reasons, uh, really. But, well, it is in line a lot with that idea, uh, w with that line of thinking, which is, in fact, the reason why the next Those Eyes, These Eyes, They Fade, which will be part of uh, the Moulouse um, Biennale, Oh, okay. in, in France um, next year and wants to use that series, uh, some, some work from that series, oh, okay. because yes, it, it does fit and it does make sense, even though it, it is a, about a subject very widely. Right. It's about Jubilee Grove. Yes. 
<laughs> which is really interesting historically. I mean, it was it was designed in the 30s. It was a glacy fortification for anyone who is familiar. Fortifications have what are known as glacy, which is a very very it's a steep slope at the end of mm-hmm. at the end of the last layer of of fortification. It's a way of keeping people away and of making sure that nothing happens in that stretch because you actually wanted to stay as clear as possible so you can unencumbered, so you can see. So you you, you give there's a vantage point to being at the top of the slope. I see. Like so Yes, of course. A tactical advantage. On that level, it's also very symbolic in a way and ironic in that sense. But um yeah, and eventually um, the British in Malta planted artificially these pine trees, quite absurdly, really, on this very <laughs> steep slope. They did them like a, a regular grid. It was literally <laughs> as if someone was in a restaurant and uh, some and surveyor approaches and asks them, okay, how do we put these? And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like a grid, tables. napkin and point, point, <laughs> literally. If you look uh-huh. at them, it's literally like that. Well, and there is a very strong rumor, which I have never managed to find Mm. actual traces of, but it is also with reason that there is no traces of it, that uh, the British did it because they were curtailing kind of gatherings in that area, which is very close to the capital, Mm. uh, that were happening, um, that would eventually lead to Malta's independence, so kind of insurrectionist uh, stuff. So they were curtailing them by planting trees. Nowadays, they <laughs> would curtail curtail them by putting a block of flats. But uh, well, right. thank God for different times. Yeah, so that's how it started its peculiar life. And that it became a, a gathering place for heroin addicts. And... Well, yes. I mean, I keep getting to this day. I There is no real literature. I mean, if anyone mm-hmm. knows, uh, this is a public appeal. If anyone knows of any real oh, literature. Oh, so these these are things that you you were maybe told or that are rumor or okay. No, that... I, I I did find a couple of things, but very mm-hmm. sporadic and very anecdotal written, and there is no real right. press about it. There are is no that the real same documentations. For the... Is that the same for the cruising ground then? There's no yes, real documentation. Yes, okay. I mean there is. Um, I know for a fact that until the 60s and 70s, it was used recreationally by families, and th- there were planting of flowers, and people would walk into, would walk through it, and so it, it's quite beautiful. It is very, and it's very peculiar. It's basically a steep slope going down, mm. and tons of pine trees going down. So at one point, if you're above, you see this carpet of trees. And it's hmm. surrounded by one of the heaviest traffic traffic roads in Malta. It's huh. it's very peculiar on that level. Yes, and uh, as soon as heroin hit, it became basically I don't know if it's the national, but definitely a regional hub for heroin users, especially because the one of the biggest public clinics in Malta uh, is literally adjacent, so mm. they would get clean needles and stuff. And the only articles I really found was uh, recent, semi-recent cleanups mm-hmm. that they did. And they were talking about human-sized mounds of syringes and right. uh, syringes stuck into trees 
like uh, oh, violently like bodies right right like th- this kind of thing and uh, yeah so when i was coming of age uh literally three minutes walk away it was this place it was it, it just had this thing around it no one ever ever told me anything uh, in my family mm. or anything about listen don't go there or that's out of bounds or uh, i just i just knew it I just felt it and everyone did. Everyone in my kind of generation, friends uh, from the region, I kind of everyone, everyone did know that they wouldn't want to go there, but they can't articulate why. And that is a very, it's a very primal kind of fear, this kind of, this very abstract fear of that is without subject. I don't know why I shouldn't go there. It just has this thing about it and it's not like people talked about it hmm. definitely to me or to people my age no one talked about it it was this specter this heavy specter around there and it started becoming um, a home for people who who for some reason or another society pushed away um, and they had to find a spot away from people but somehow, if you see the geographical location of the place, it is literally in the middle of a very highly traffic. You can't go to the capital city without mm. passing by it. It's all the ironies in the world are around that right. place. It's people uh, who can't yeah. be themselves outside of that place. Yes. Fully um, themselves. And they be, they explore that inside this area. And yeah. the area seems somewhat hidden and protected and safe, but it's actually quite exposed itself. It's right? not, it's completely exposed, even even <laughs> even because it's uh, sloped, so it's really not hidden at all. Um, uh, but but interesting that it it feels like a, a safe space to explore parts of yourself you can't do more publicly. I guess I think it also then. It plays into the way you made the the photographs. You photographed this. You first of all, you call it a factless survey. Yes, right? it is because <laughs> I was since like years ago when I got my camera, uh, when I got the camera I'm using now, and before that, I was just my mom uh, went to live on the other side of it in Pieta, and I live in Floriana, which is so I used it a lot to commute mm. and. I just was compulsively taking photos every time with my phone of the same things. I just couldn't uh, not do it. It was just really captivating. So I had done it for for a long <laughs> time, and then I start. I figured I had to address it. So basically, the place was really started becoming a hub for middle-aged male cruisers kind of Mm -hmm. thing where they would go there and people who are looking for that kind of stimuli that kind of action if you want they they knew they could go there it became of course there were criminal undertones in the sense that people would get mugged and Mm. they would put file in police reports for mugging when in reality, just people stole their clothes while they were doing stuff in the bushes. And they there are tons up. of right. reports. Yeah. So th- there is that sense in there. And it's a factless survey just because 
I was compulsively taking photos everywhere for no real reason, but I, I ended up with this matrix of photos of like, at one point it just felt like I, I was looking for something. I was looking to map the whole place or a lot of it. I wasn't interested in, in any fact about it. And you, you look at the photos, they're not trying to really say anything or really be witness to anything. They're completely mm -hmm. not that. So yeah, There's uh, no people the, in the, the idea of factless yeah. survey, it felt right. Well, you're also using a very long lens and creating <laughs> long and compressed yes. images. It has a very voyeuristic kind of viewpoint, but of course, of nothing, of trees and yes. spaces and so light and I fog. Was, and, uh, right. I'm not sure what sparked that idea. I, I, I love, I just have been fascinated by the idea of owning a 500 millimeter lens and the what it did to perspective and what it did mm -hmm. to your sense of space it is mind-blowing uh, it adds something to the the feeling of that slope though doesn't it yes yes and yeah, it adds yeah. something to if you as a photographer if you look through it a lot um while you're photographing it becomes that schizophrenic experience because literally hmm. you are looking at that small thing in, in the distance for a long time and suddenly you look away and you're like, oh my God, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> it's completely... That's right. It transports you a little bit. While and, you're... That in the, yeah. and that in kind of, uh, yeah. So it, then it made sense that I would use it there somehow because yes, it has the voyeuristic element and if anyone wanted to take photos of these people, kind of uh, make a documentary about them or private investigation for something. It's the actual lens that they, they would use. But I, of course, I pointed it at the trees and it right. somehow feels like the photos feel like they have a weird perspective to them and they feel like I'm looking for from very far. And I love that. I, 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 I like the idea of that. But it's also very counterintuitive because there's shady people walking around there. And mm -hmm. there I go. A very tall guy with a lens, <laughs> with a which is lens. half my body. <laughs> so uh, I went there very sparingly to shoot. The other thing I noticed about uh, your work is you tend to mix in black and white and color. Is there a sort of um, rule or something you go by where you decide if something should be in color or black and white? Mm, yes. It, um, well, the, the way I approach it is I'm, I, I shoot mostly digital. I went through an analog phase and I am planning to go again. And analog usually draws me to black and white. But in my digital work, I shoot, shoot, shoot. And the great thing about digital is I don't have to think twice, uh, which usually draws me into a lot of circular thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then when I look at the photos uh, during post-processing, I, I question myself, what am I looking at? Am I looking at what is in it for me in this image? Are, is it the tones? Is it the focus? Is it the temperature, the color temperature, the different colors of it. And it just usually has a very simple answer. And some photos just, I want to be in black and white because in reality, that is how I, that is what I wanted to draw from them. Mm -hmm. So it's not methodical, but it is, it is quite, it's quite simple in my head. Yeah. I mean, I, I find, um, 
often the but what color introduces is it sets up different relationships uh, between the things that are in the photo. It also can either obscure or reveal light exactly uh, yes. in different ways that are better or worse depending on which way you're going it's a different it's a different perceptual game and also we are in a culture where uh, of course looking at a black and white image the references the cultural references are completely different uh, yes right. suddenly i'm not thinking about certain photographers certain paintings certain visual mm -hmm. reference so then suddenly i'm thinking about something else and so yeah. it's a, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting shift, which gladly I don't seem to overthink too much, which is quite a, <laughs> that's good, quite a peculiar <laughs> phenomenon, which I will try to, which I will try to protect. Right. <laughs> well, now in Day's Light, it's also uh, very much about a place, but in this instance, you're you're revealing it through its architecture and architectural detail, I would say, but also in spaces that are so kind of unadorned and plain, they become almost abstractions in the way they're revealed. The other thing I want to ask you about in Day's Light is, do you relate to that sort of monastic contemplative approach because you do have these anxieties? Was it actually also in some ways therapeutic? Well, I was always drawn to von der Lahn's work. I mean, he's a cult figure in the architectural scene. Mm. Um, and I was, so yeah, I, I went to this this monastery because it has a guest thing in it that you could do. And I spent oh, okay. some, days here, so some days there and met monks and just photographed. The thing that struck me most and that what was inspired the, what inspired me to actually make this is Van der Laan, the architect, is very much known for his peculiar geometries. He mm -hmm. he introduced he introduced a different system, a personal system of geometric re relations, which were pretty much unheard of. Many architects of that time uh, would refer to the modulor by Le Corbusier, which relates to the human proportions in some way. And this guy comes along and uh, he just quotes. A specific proportion one is to seven and and draws a whole thing out of it and makes blocks that could work with so yes they have this his work has this very peculiar geometry to it things don't quite follow as you would expect and stuff so i went there and i was like yeah that's i want to explore this i want to it's fascinating how do you pronounce it? Saint Benedict Benedictusburg. It's in. It's, uh, it is in limits of the Netherlands. Um, limits okay. of the southern limits of the Netherlands, very close to Germany in reality. And you, you had selected this place because you knew the architecture and yes. who designed it. Yes, oh, okay, yes, okay. yes. I had been wanting to visit one of the places that he did, and I was on a trip kind of nearby and I thought yeah I should go there um yeah I, I was going there with that intent kind of and because that's how he's projected even on internet and on the stuff but in reality what struck me most is his actual use of I'm hoping it's all intentional because it can't not be his mm. his use of daylight and what daylight does to the building and how and how the building accommodates daylight i've never quite seen anything like it to be honest and i had just been to the same trip i had been to ronsham 
by Le Corbusier, which is one of the most accomplished architectural buildings that have ever existed. And it is a huge masterpiece. On, on several levels, it's much more accomplished than the, the monastery. But the monastery, the, the way it accommodates light is very, very, very peculiar. It has ways of dividing light, mm-hmm. of par- kind of parceling light and using using the negative spaces of light, the darkness, to actually put emphasis on specific things. And well, it that moves. really comes through your, your photographs of I this was, place. Because I was I, literally blown away. They're kind away. of puzzles, right? Yeah. Like you're looking at it thinking, there's light filling this room, but it's not hitting this column. Or, exactly, you know. <laughs> exactly. There, there, there's all that kind of things. And I was like completely blown away and I, <laughs> in my head I was like how how is this not I mean how is this not more celebrated <laughs> in the architectural mm-hmm. world about this place because it's the most striking thing and uh, so yes I took a lot of photos um the monastic side of it yes of course I am drawn to to contemplative spaces and uh, they I'm quite attuned with the fact that contemplation is very good for me (laughs) and very good for the kind of person I am. And I am drawn to it. There is this side of me which co-inhabits with a lot of different sides um, Mm. that is, feels very at home. I I can't say I related a lot to the, mm, the monastic life. There is this thing I could never... I t- disengage I, no I, I i i there's the submissiveness to it which in my head psychologically is reacting to something quite unrelated to faith and to to genuine exploration i mean if it works for them it's great i mean whatever works that's what i think but uh i don't think it would be for me but uh, I definitely, I definitely am curious about it, and the place lends itself very beautifully to it, um, right. which is great in the sense that there's very little distraction happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from yeah. your pho- I, I only have your photographs to look at, but it does feel like a place of great solitude. Yes. It it is, and uh, it's unfortunately regarded as very ascetic and very very raw and very kind of border brutalist really oh i see well i can understand the the brutalist comment uh but i also think there's a hidden beauty that requires time to experience it it's not that it is i wouldn't say beauty it, it is not ascetic and not brutalist at all it is very mm-hmm. welcoming to the touch I mean, surfaces, the guy designed everything in there, furniture, mm-hmm. he did everything from scratch, the lamps, everything. And whatever you are meant to touch and come in contact with is very beautiful to the touch. Mm. It's very soothing. It is very haptic. It's a very haptic experience. So it's not like the attitude of, yeah, this is concrete, this is rough. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not at all. It's, uh, it's, it, it's actually very delicate and elaborate in its own way which is another thing that i think is misunderstood about the place so uh, to wrap up i noticed that you are participating in a photo book program with penumbra foundation and yeah 
the Image Threads Collective. What is uh, what is that? What is that about? Well, it is. Uh, I'm glad that I get to plug this in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good! It's glad fantastic. It yeah, it, 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 it is. I I had again through those eyes. These eyes, they fade. Um, uh, Steve Bisson, Urbanautica, who came to cover the show, told me that he is curating Ragusa Photo Festival, and I went there a couple of weeks later, and I I met Tim Carpenter and Jenia Frizlian there. And we spent a couple of days together and there were other people and we kind of, yeah, clicked or something. And uh, they told me about this program, which is a photo book, a year long photo book program where you get to focus your energies and be guided uh, in the production of and the thinking about a photo book. And you get to be instructed and guided by by some of the best people around um, <laughs> to do it uh, mm -hmm. i mean tim jenya i mean we we're having a critique with uh, raymond meeks there is his son adam meeks we have guest artists nice. and stuff so who look at our work and it's producing a a completely different photo book so i'm kind of right now sitting on three photo books which is <laughs> quite insane yes <laughs> it is. I, is is this going to be existing work or new work or combination it is the it is it is on it is there's a selection of it on my website it disappears oh, okay so i am exploring that uh through this this course and we get assignments to look at it differently to to also get acquainted with the medium of of, of photo books, which I oh, okay. I've always perceived photography and shot photos for thinking about exhibitions. Mm -hmm. That was my modus operandi kind of thing, and this whole thing upturned my uh, my life. What and. Uh, started yes. that process. So you're blaming on for <laughs> yes <laughs> for all of this Completely. taking over your life. <laughs> yeah. Well, nice. Well, thank you, Nigel. This has been really uh, wonderful. And uh, you're in, in Malta now, right? I am. Yes. 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 And, and we, I don't think we mentioned it. You, you are born and raised Malta. Yes? I, we, I, I was born and raised in Malta. And uh, yeah. one thing I didn't mention is a great friend of mine here who showed me the ropes and showed me, exposed me to most of the culture, which now sits at the base of my sensibilities, uh, artistic sensibilities, because a place like Malta, that kind of mentorship is not to be taken lightly. As mm. in, it's not, <laughs> uh, in my life, I had some mentors, but mostly I would say this guy and Anne have been, I'm literally Who, without them. Well, it's, well, it's just Marazzo Pardi. He's a he's okay. he, he's a he's a Maltese guy. He's a painter as well here. Yeah, I mean he is just the the biggest encyclopedia and library mm. of of cultural knowledge that I I probably have ever met. Still anything from films mm -hmm. to uh, to literature to poetry 
to music. Yeah, no, a good. You know what? To have a good mentor, that that's fantastic. It's, it was. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, these things, the, these things are the actual things that change, that uh, guide right guide people's paths, especially someone like me who is extremely insecure just about everything. No, it's wonderful. So and uh, and this was this was wonderful. So thanks again. Thank you. It's it, it's been great. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Photo Show is produced by me, Michael Chovendalton, and the music is by Matteo Chovendalton. Be sure to check out our bonus content on YouTube at Real Photo Show. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast players, and if you feel so inclined, please rate the show with many, many stars.